0: Well, based on that update and that prayer, this sermon may be very appropriate. We're in Philippians, first official Philippians um, of the series, and it is uh, verses uh, 12 to 20 in chapter 1, if you want to turn there in your Bibles or tap there on your phones. And I've titled it, The Gospel in Hard Places. And it would be easy, having just heard the update that we've heard, And prayed the prayers that we've prayed to wonder and to ask, where does the gospel show up in hard places? How does the gospel make its way in hard places? How does hope and light come in difficult times, in difficult circumstances, and in difficult cases? And the Philippians and the uh, sort of Middle Eastern climate is... uh, and what Paul was facing was essentially that. Uh, as we read this letter in Philippians, you remember that this is about 12, 10 to 12 years after Paul founded the church, and he's been doing ministry for a little over a decade, and he's now in prison, obviously a hard place, and he's writing back to his friends in the Philippian church. That's what this letter is about. It's a letter back to the Philippians, to the people of Philippi. And it is kind of a missionary report. And what the Philippians are concerned about are the hard circumstances that Paul is in, just as the Bravos are in very difficult circumstances. And they have questions, they have concerns, they have worries, they have fears, just as we do. And and we can get caught up in those various fears and concerns, fears that as Christians we feel are valid and and right things for us to be concerned about. We may fear that the, the gospel isn't going forth effectively in our culture anymore. We fear that the church is under attack, both from outside and inside. We fear that faithful friends and important people in ministry or missions are suffering. We fear the people of God are being muffled or silenced, or or the church is being sidelined by our culture or our government. We ultimately fear that God is just not paying attention or taking care of his gospel mission correctly. We think, God, this is your mission, it's your gospel, why aren't you doing a better job of getting it out there? At the very least, he seems to be letting things happen that hamper the gospel's progress and the hope and the light that the gospel brings, and that doesn't seem right. Well, the Philippian church had all these fears too, and they were concerned about the missionary they were supporting, they were concerned about the success of the gospel mission, but as Paul writes to them from prison, we see in his opening paragraphs that he is very much aware of their fears and very much aware of their concerns, and he has an answer for all of their fears and all of their worries. And all of their anxieties. And Paul's answers, I think, we will find some answers to our own Christian concerns and our own worries and our own fears. Because we have hard places in our life. And we have hard places in our ministry. And we recognize that the church, even in Canada, is in a hard place. And we support missionaries that are trying to bring the gospel to hard places. And Paul says there's an answer to that. The theme of these paragraphs is Paul allaying Philippian concerns. Remember last week, he's already allayed their concern for his emotional well-being. We saw that last week. Philippians, you're worried that I'm discouraged because I'm in prison? Nope, I am full of joy and full of thankfulness, even while I'm in prison, in large part due to your faithfulness and the gospel support that you give. So Paul has kind of allayed that fear. I'm not emotionally distressed while I'm in, in prison. But now Paul's going to allay three more fears and reassure them about the progress of his missionary work. And he's going to allay any fears they have about rumors that they have heard about the evangelists taking over Paul's presence while he's been sidelined. And finally, they're going to allay any fears that they have about his own life and safety in the future of the gospel ministry. And as we're going to see in just a minute... Paul allays all of these fears and he offers all of this reassurance to all of these concerns with one consistent theme in all areas. Namely, the reality that nothing stops the relentless progress of the gospel. And the gospel is fully able to thrive in hard places and in hard cases. In short, Paul is saying, don't fear Philippians, don't be concerned, because the gospel progresses, the kingdom advances, no matter what apparent barriers and blockades may be put in its path by enemies outside or in. Well, what can we learn from these few words of Paul is how the gospel is meant to reassure us and how the gospel, this is the key thing here, the gospel reframes our view of what is taking place. The Philippians have one sort of view, one angle on what they think is happening to Paul in Rome or Caesarea, whichever prison he's in. And Paul is basically saying, I'm going to show you how the gospel takes what you're looking at and reframes it in a whole new light. And that's how you need to see how the gospel is at work. All of our concerns, all of our worries, all of our fears vanish in the light of gospel hope. Let's pray. Father God, just pray as we read your word and unpack it that it would be relevant to us today. I know that it's relevant to us today. I know, because I've seen it. We've, I've felt it over the last many years, but especially the last two or three. The concern of the stifling of your word, the concern of the muffling of your people, the concern of the pressure on the church, the concern that the gospel hope is not going forth, and that the church and us personally face hard times and difficult circumstances. But, Father, open our hearts and our ears and our eyes to hear what Paul speaks to these Philippian friends of his. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, Philippians chapter 1, starting at verse 12. Paul writes, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel What then? Only that in every way, in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit of Christ Jesus, sorry, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So there are three reassurances that Paul is giving here, and the first reassurance is to the Philippians is, be reassured the gospel thrives in hard places. Philippians, you need to reframe your understanding of how the gospel succeeds. You're worried that I'm in prison and that is somehow affecting the gospel. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As we know, and the Philippians know, Paul's writing this from prison, the what has happened to me in this part of the text is referring to his imprisonment, literally his fetters, his bindings, or his chains. He says, my chains, my chains, my chains. It's translated here imprisonment. And he refers to his chains or his fetters five separate times just in this paragraph. And the Philippians are clearly concerned, they're worried and fearful that chaining Paul would be like chaining up the gospel. Paul, you are a missionary machine. You are the capital E evangelist. You are the chosen messenger of God to the Gentiles. We're backing you in plenty and in poverty. We are giving our money to you because you are the man out in the street. And we support you. And now you're muffled, you're muted, you're sidelined, you're chained up. And Paul immediately wants to allay that fear. He wants to reassure the Philippians you guys, let's reframe how the gospel actually works. Paul says, putting me in chains has been a great service to the gospel. A slightly more direct and better translation comes from the NASB here, which renders this phrase of Paul's, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. In other words, the gospel doesn't just make progress in spite of me being in prison. Right? The Philippians are probably thinking, well, Paul's in prison, but I'm sure something's happening. You know, maybe there's a little bit of gospel progress taking place even though Paul's in jail. He says, you guys back home have your hand on your forehead in dismay that I'm in jail, and and you're thinking just a little bit of progress is going to be happening. But the reality is what you have to understand here is that the gospel is making greater progress because I'm in prison. You need to flip your frame of reference. The gospel is actually doing better with me off the street than with me on the street. Now, how can Paul legitimately say that? Where does he see it being true? And he gives two examples. He says, first of all, it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest, and he's speaking of the rest of the imperial household, that my imprisonment is for Christ. And again, there may be a... A slightly better, more direct translation here, which hints at a deeper meaning. The, the phrase that Paul uses here actually translates better, it has been made manifest to the guard and everyone else that my chains are Christ's. And so, in English, we insert it is for Christ to say that he's in prison for the sake of Christ, and that's true, and that's not wrong, but Paul says it more plainly. He says, my chains are Christ's chains. And everybody knows it. So reframe, Philippians, reframe your understanding of what is going on. As Christians, we will suffer as Christ suffered. We will endure Christ's shame. You remember Colossians 1.24, Paul said, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. This means Jesus isn't here to be in these chains, but I'm here. I'm here wearing these chains, identifying with Christ, and everybody sees me identifying with Christ in my affliction. And the end result is... The whole palace guard and the rest of the palace household know about Jesus because of this. They know I am in these chains for one reason only, because I identify with Jesus and preach him, and so the gospel is making great use of these chains. Don't be concerned, Philippians, when things go hard for me, because the gospel is going forward better than if it didn't. Not only that, secondly, Paul says it's made most of the brothers much more bold to speak. It's made everyday Christians more confident and bold and courageous to proclaim the gospel without fear, he says, even though that's what I'm in prison for. I'm in prison for being too bold in my preaching, and yet other brothers are out preaching in my place, and enemies of the gospel are trying to shut them down and shut the gospel down. All the opponents have accomplished by putting me in jail is to put even more evangelists out on the street. So Paul is reassuring the Philippians by reframing their understanding of the circumstances. The gospel is perfectly capable of flourishing and thriving in hard places. It's worth considering why Paul thinks and writes this way. Because like you're reading that, you're thinking, why does Paul think this way? Why has Paul got his mind and heart so clearly reframed? Why can he speak to the Philippians so confidently to say, you should reframe your thinking as I have already reframed my thinking? Why is Paul's thinking already reframed? Why isn't he concerned with the same questions? Why isn't he asking God, why am I in prison? And why are you thwarting your most successful missionary? Paul isn't worried about himself or the gospel mission as he sits in chains. But why is that? Why is he so confident? Well, there's a few things that Paul knows. Paul knows Romans eight twenty-eight, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So Paul knows that whatever may be happening to him, God is using it for good. His mind is saturated with this truth. I hope he knows this. He wrote it. The pain or suffering he endures as a Christian is never wasted by God. God is always doing something good and greater. Whatever circumstances may afflict Paul may afflict you. God is not wasting it ever. He's accomplishing good with it. So Paul sits in his chains in prison and he remembers Romans 8.28 and he thinks, God is working this for good. My mind is already reframed. I know what God is doing because I'm a believer because I am called according to his purpose. I know that whatever happens to me, no matter how dismaying it is, no matter how dismal it looks, no matter how difficult, no matter how discouraging, God is using it for good, and so I have confidence. That's one thing Paul knows. Paul also knows all the things Jesus taught and promised, and one important promise that Paul is likely leaning into right here is Matthew 16, 18. Remember, Jesus asks the disciples, Who do you think I am? They give some wrong guesses. Peter finally says, You're the Messiah. And Jesus answers Peter and he says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, not the rock that he's Peter, but on the rock of his statement that Jesus is the Messiah, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So Paul knows this. He's sitting there in prison in Caesarea or Rome, wherever he is, and and he knows that Jesus has promised that the people of God are getting built up, and all the forces of hell won't stop that from happening. So Paul knows the church is built by the gospel, is built by the rock, the proclamation, that Jesus is the Messiah, he's the promised king, the suffering servant, and he will save his people by his stripes, by his wounds, that same gospel rock that Paul is proclaiming, and he knows that that gospel rock cannot fail, so he sits there in prison and he says, Jesus already promised this gates of hell can't stand against the progress of the gospel. And so Paul's frame of reference is fundamentally different than these worrying Philippians because he's filled with the knowledge and the confidence in what Jesus has taught and what God has revealed. And so Paul's response to his circumstances and to the mission of the gospel is to reassure the Philippians. Stop being concerned. Don't fear. Don't worry. Be reassured. The gospel isn't going to be stopped by my imprisonment. My imprisonment is for good, it's not for harm. Well, what about us? Do we have Paul's frame of reference as we approach the difficulties both in the church, maybe in terms of the gospel mission in Canada, in terms of lakeside, in terms of reaching our friends, in terms of reaching the lost, in terms of bringing light and truth and hope to people? Do we share Paul's frame of mind? Or maybe in our own personal lives, when we face hardship, when we are fettered, when we are chained, when we are imprisoned by illness or whatever it is, do we sit in our old frame of reference like the Philippians and pester God with questions? or wring our hands with worry? Or should we rather join Paul in shifting our frame of reference to a gospel frame, to a kingdom frame? And from the gospel perspective, from a kingdom perspective, we suddenly see that God is in control, and he's working all things for good, and his gospel, his hope, his love, his mission will not be slowed down by trifling inconveniences like prison or illness or the Roman Empire. Those things will not stop what God is doing. In the world, with the gospel, in the kingdom, or in your own life. Nothing will thwart God's goodness. Rather, we should be all the bolder, not fretting over cultural opponents and cultural op- opposition. We should not be obsessed with with worrying about ideologies in our world that oppose us, or legal maneuvers that are meant to silence the gospel or the church. Do you you think any of those things can actually stop what Jesus said will never be stopped? No, they can try their best. But Paul would say to the Philippians, "Don't waste your energy with worry. If you've got any energy to spend, spend it on the gospel, because it will succeed. Fear is not faith." Worry is not trust. Rather, be all the bolder in your testimony of the gospel and the hope and the good news that it carries to all who hear. And that's Paul's main reframing and reassurance. That's, That's Paul's main point. The gospel thrives in hard places. Nothing will stop the progress of the gospel. But there's two more things that he wants to reassure the Philippians and reassure us about as well, and we'll cover them in a little shorter time. Secondly, Paul says, be reassured, insincere evangelists are still evangelists, reframe Philippians your worries about how the gospel ministry is getting done. He says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill, the latter do it from love, knowing that I am put here in the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So Paul acknowledges here to the Philippians that not all gospel ministry that is happening is sincere, but if you have the right frame of reference, that doesn't worry you either. You're not concerned about motives. Paul is essentially conceding. He says, indeed, yes, I am in prison, and there are a whole bunch of apostle wannabes coming out of the woodwork to try and take my place while I'm sidelined. There's all these other evangelists that have risen up to try to replace me in my missionary journey. But don't worry about it, Philippians, because even though some of them have shady motives, some of them are envious and some are doing it out of rivalry and ambition, they may be doing it just to try to get me angry or jealous of them. But joke is on them. They're still faithfully preaching the gospel and I love it. I'm in here rejoicing at their preaching, while they're doing it to try to replace me or to anger me. It's, it's kind of a funny situation, right? It's kind of like, I was trying to think of an analogy. It's kind of like if you have kids. And, you know, and, and maybe, you know, maybe you're one of these guys that likes to clean out the garage, right? You just love getting the garbage thrown out and everything put in its place, and you love it, and, and you know, your son or your daughter knows how much you love. Saturday's coming, dad's going to clean the garage, and he loves it. Well, I'm going to show him. I am so angry at him. I'm going to clean that garage for him. (laughs) He's going to wake up on Saturday morning and the garage is going to be totally clean and he's going to be so angry that the garage is clean. That's like what these guys are doing. I'm going to go preach the gospel. Paul's going to be so upset that I'm out preaching the gospel because I'm replacing him. He's sitting in jail and he can't preach and I know how much he loves to preach so I'm going to go preach the gospel and he's going to be so upset that he's been replaced. Paul's like, oh yeah, (laughs) I'm so upset. (laughs) I don't care what the motives are. The garage is clean. The gospel is preached. Hallelujah! Somebody want to come clean my garage? Actually, it really needs it. I do not like cleaning the garage. So, but you see, that's what he's saying. He, he's saying these people are—it's kind of silly. The, these people are thinking that I'm going to be envious of them, or there's some kind of rivalry to compete who preaches the gospel better. Paul's like, I just rejoice. And why is that a gospel perspective? Because he says, don't look at me. Don't be worried about me. You think I'm upset because I'm not the main guy, because I'm not getting the headlines? Don't look at me. Look at the gospel. Is the gospel really being preached? Then don't worry. Have a gospel perspective. Don't have a Paul perspective. And this is sort of my personal baseline for ecumenism, fancy word for how different churches and denominations cooperate. My bottom line is, are they preaching the gospel regularly, clearly, and faithfully? And if they are, then I'm not going to get hung up on matters of secondary doctrinal importance, certainly not on methods or styles or motives. I can partner with, I can celebrate, I can rejoice with other pastors, other churches, other denominations who are reaching the lost, serving the community, experiencing growth, gaining ground, getting attention, whatever, without jealousy, without any fear or concern, as long as the gospel is preached, I'm rejoicing with them. So don't fear, Philippians. The gospel can use flashy, insincere evangelists and churches and denominations who may not do things the way we would do them. But maybe we don't control them, maybe we don't have influence over them, and we're worried that whatever. Maybe they're trying to steal our territory. Paul says, don't worry. We rejoice as long as they are preaching the gospel. Now, to be clear, If they're preaching a different gospel or are false teachers, a completely different apostle Paul appears. He comes with a verbal sword unsheathed. Later on in this letter, he's going to call some false teachers dogs. And in other letters like 2 Corinthians and Galatians, he hopes they are accursed if they teach anything other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. But here in Philippians, as long as they're preaching the true gospel, Paul is thrilled. So don't worry. Don't get caught up on methods. Don't get caught up on motives. Don't worry that it's not us. Just rejoice that the gospel is preached. How about our frame of reference? Are we concerned with the building of our empire, of making sure people are gather at our banner? Do we fret if people are finding church community and gospel truth elsewhere? Well, we shouldn't, and and I know that we don't. So I almost say that rhetorically, because I know that as a church we don't worry about that. But maybe this land's a little closer to home. Do we sometimes get focused on our differences of style or methods or even skeptical of motives with other ministries? Do we think they're too experiential or too commercial or they're a megachurch or they're too seeker-sensitive or they're sheep-stealers, whatever it may be? And so we take little shots at these other churches that are different than us. Or we steer people away from them when, in fact, whatever their motives, whatever their method, they're preaching the gospel and we should be telling people, hey, go hear the gospel. I'm not afraid of their success, and neither should you be. The gospel can use jail time and hard circumstances, and the gospel can use insincere motives just as easily, too. So, Philippians, don't be worried about my success. Reframe your attention on gospel success. And then thirdly, he says, finally, be reassured I'm not in fear for my life, and there's gospel work for me to do still. Philippians, he says, reframe your understanding of Christian life and death. He says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, sorry, the Spirit of Jesus, I have it memorized in a different translation, and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And he goes on, For me to live as Christ and to die as gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor to me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two, life or death, and goes on as such a great paragraph. And we don't have time to get into all of that today. But just this first part here, Paul basically says, Alive or dead, I will honor God. And personally, if I end up dead from this trial, that is a big gain for me. If they end up putting me to death, then I get Jesus. And if I stay alive, then that means more gospel ministry with you guys, and that's awesome too. So Philippian friends, don't be afraid for me or worry about my life or death. I rejoice whichever way it goes. And anyway, Paul says in verse 19 and again in verse 25, this is going to turn out for my deliverance. I already know that I will remain and continue on with you all. So Paul says, Philippians, be reassured. Stop being fearful. Do not worry about my life or death. You think I'm concerned about whether I live or die? I win both ways. You need to reframe, Philippians. Philippians, reframe your understanding of Christian life and death. You're thinking in the old way that death is somehow a loss. Christians don't think about death as a loss. Death is a gain. What's Paul's frame of reference to give him this hope and assurance? Why is Paul able to think this way? Well, Paul is explaining and demonstrating to the Philippians the basic theology of the cross. The cross and Christian life and death. The great instrument of Jesus' shame is also the great instrument of his victory. Hebrews twelve two says, That for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross and disregarded its shame. And now he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God in victory. So for Paul, there, there's no shame or suffering on earth that he cannot endure and even disregard as long as Jesus is exalted. So Philippians, reframe your thinking of life and death. If you have the gospel, if you have Jesus Christ, we don't think like other people do about life and death. We think about life and death completely differently. And so your worries about my personal safety are unfounded because I am not worried about any sin, sorry, any shame, or any death that may befall me. Jesus scoffed at the shame of the cross, and he endured suffering unto death because he was exalting God and the plan of salvation in it. And what was intended for shame and was intended for defeat, Jesus has transformed into glory and victory, and I identify with Jesus. Anything intended for my shame, anything intended for, me defeat, for my, my defeat will be transformed into exaltation and into victory. And so Paul says here, that's what I'm about, Philippian friends. That's the Christian life. Nothing can ultimately shame me or defeat me because either by my life or my death, Christ is exalted in both cases. And not only that, as I've said, death is only a gain for me. To me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I remember, I used to listen to Mark Driscoll a time ago and... People would always ask her, Mark, because he talked a lot about bacon. He would talk about bacon in his sermons, and somebody came up to him one time and he said, Mark, you know, bacon is unhealthy. You shouldn't be promoting the eating of bacon. It's very unhealthy. It, it can kill you if you eat too much bacon. And Mark said, That would be ideal if I ate so much bacon I died. Because <laughs> I'm going to be with Christ full of bacon. <laughs> pinnacle of earth, pinnacle of heaven. Both at once. And that's what Paul is saying here. It's like, what are they going to do? Kill me so that I can go to be with Jesus? How is that bad? And so for a Christian like Paul, both life and death are such great opportunities. He says he's hard-pressed to decide which one he prefers. I don't even know. Sitting here in prison, I don't even, maybe I'd rather die. But I really want to minister with you guys too. I just stop and think about that. That is a major reframing of our understanding of life and death, isn't it? When you can just laugh and say, sure, kill me. What are you, you going to do? Send me to Jesus? Okay. So Philippians, don't worry. And the, and the Philippians are worried. They're worried for Paul, right? He's in prison. They know it's Nero. Anything could happen. They're worried that he's worried. They're worried that he's afraid for his life. And he's saying, don't worry. Be reassured. I'm not afraid of either life or death. But then he goes on, he says, don't worry, because the gospel isn't done with me yet anyway. By your prayer and the work of the Holy Spirit, I'm convinced I'm going to be preaching for a lot longer yet. And that turned out to be true, actually. Paul was released from his first imprisonment, roughly 62 AD, and he was arrested again and retried, likely in 65 AD, in the Christian roundup after the burning of Rome. We get little hints of that from 2 Timothy. But Paul is released from this imprisonment, and he does go on to preach for several more years. In all of these ways, Paul has one heart towards the Philippians to reassure them, to steer them away from fear of circumstances towards faith in the cross and the gospel. The Philippians are writing, they've sent a letter to Paul, he's responding to them, he's picked up on what they're afraid of. They're afraid that he's in prison and he's emotionally Distraught. They're afraid that the gospel is getting sidelined because its chief evangelist has been muffled. They're afraid that, uh, you know, there are other ministries that are rising up to take his place and that these people are not faithful. And, and they're worried that Paul may actually have his life in danger and that he's afraid about that. And Paul says, No, I am joyful and thankful and rejoicing in prison and the me being on, in prison is actually better for the gospel because the gospel knows exactly how to handle hard times and hard situations, and it can thrive and bring hope in every situation. And, and these guys that are preaching, hey, it's great. I'm glad they're preaching the gospel, and I'm not worried about whether I live or die. And, and Paul says all of these four things, all four of these reassurances from Paul all come from the same thing, the gospel. The gospel thrives. The gospel... Is being preached. I'm a participant in the gospel with Christ, and the gospel says I'm going to go home to be with him, or I've got purposeful ministry, one or the other. So, so Philippians, so Halliburtonians, whatever the hard cases, whatever the hard places. Whatever situations our missionaries are in, whatever situation our church is in, whatever situation it seems Canadian culture is in, whatever it seems that the Roman Empire or or the Trudeau Empire or the whatever empire is next, whatever they think they are doing to suppress the church and stop the gospel and the hope and the truth and the light and the comfort of it to go forth, do not fret. Do not worry. The gospel... And God's promises surpass all of those things in the church, in the world, and in your own life. So what about our frame of reference on life and death and on suffering? When we're fettered, when we're restricted, when we're oppressed, when we're suffering, do we share Paul's gospel frame of reference? Paul's gospel-centered hope and trust in ultimate victory. Now here's the reality. I don't know the family situation that you face. I do not know what your latest medical diagnosis was. I don't know the situation in your job. I don't know what your hard circumstance is. And the world, as we've prayed this morning for the Bravos, are just one of many missionaries and people in the world. We know this world is filled with hard, hard circumstances, just like Paul is in. We know this congregation is filled with people enduring hard, hard circumstances. Circumstances so hard, I don't have any right to speak of them. But in those circumstances, the Apostle Paul is saying, it is our joy as Christians to exalt Christ in our bodies, whether we live or die. It is our joy to place our faith in the gospel and the cross, not fear what seems to oppose us. We must reframe our minds to see all things in the light of the glory of Christ and in the good news of his gospel. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that Paul, in prison, facing Nero, facing potential death, seeing his ministry sidelined, suffering in all the different ways we can imagine, writes this first couple of paragraphs to free Christians in Philippi, and says, don't worry, don't fret, reframe, reframe, reframe. Father God, I, I pray for my help, help with me, help, help me reframe how I view what's going on, whether it's in politics or school or life or work or with friends or family, reframe, reframe, reframe. Constantly be reframing my mind and my heart to a gospel framework. And Father, I know that as we saw here in Paul, that that happens when I'm Bible-saturated and gospel-centered. I cannot transform my mind without your word and your truth. So when we pray this prayer to be reframed, Father, we want to do the work of saturating our lives with gospel truth, with your word, and meditating on the good news of Jesus Christ. That's how we'll reframe.